0: Welcome to the R.E. Human Layer Security podcast, the show that flips the script on cybersecurity. I'm Tim Sadler, the CEO and co-founder of Tessian, and in each episode, I'll be interviewing IT and business leaders about why we need to protect people, not just machines and data, to stop breaches and empower businesses to achieve their missions. Hi everybody. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Helen Patton, an advisory CISO at Cisco and previously the CISO at The Ohio State University, and also an executive director at J.P. Morgan Chase. With many years working in security, risk, and privacy, Helen advocates using information risk management to enable the mission of organizations and support society at large. As an advisory CISO, she shares strategies with the security community actively encourages collaboration across different industries to enable better information security and privacy practices, and also seeks to improve diversity and inclusion in the workforce by mentoring people interested in pursuing careers in security. Helen, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Tim, thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about your role as an advisory CISO. How did you get into this field and what are your responsibilities?
1: Yeah, so I was an operational security person for a really long time, thanks to the, (laughs) thanks for reading my bio. Um, And I sort of hit a point where I wanted to continue to be part of the broader community and to give back what I learned, but I did not want to be staying up at night and having to respond to midnight security incidents and things like that. And so a lot of CISOs will tell you they sort of wonder what it, what do you do when you're done being a CISO? And the advisory CISO role at Cisco became available to me. Um, they they sort of uh, th- through contacts because this is how the security community always works, through contacts, uh, they reached out to say, hey, would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, the time is right. Um So the advisory CISO role at Cisco is one where I get to do a lot of talking with the community in terms of roundtables and think tanks and conferences and seminars and things like that. Um, But I also get to talk internally with the Cisco product and engineering teams around what the community needs. And so it's a bi-directional kind of role which is really fun for me. Um, I get to work with super smart people and I still get to work with the community at large to understand what everyone's going through and and what they need.
0: And what are some of the most common questions that you're asked by others in the security community?
1: A lot of the time, it's it's strategic, forward-looking questions. I think we all have pretty good data around what has happened. What you know, what are the things? You, there, there's certainly a lot of industry reporting. Whether that's you know conferences or podcasts and and those kinds of things that talk about things that have happened. What CISOs need, though, is the ability to look into the future and sort of look around the corner of what's coming down. And certainly the last two or three years has really challenged us because we could not have predicted in any way, shape or form the things that have happened the last two or three years. Um, But from a security trends perspective, this is where the conversation is. So it, it could be actually quite tactical in terms of things like, what are we doing around cyber insurance? What are we seeing in terms of the insurance marketplace? It could be something as something like that, or it could be something sort of much longer term in terms of things like geopolitical changes that are happening in the environment and what that, that might mean for security supply chains and what that might mean then in terms of impacts to security strategy. So it, it's a really interesting place, but it's it's typically the conversations are very forward-focused.
0: And a key piece of advice you've shared with security leaders is to remember that they don't operate in a vacuum. Could you tell us a little bit more about it, this?
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges I faced as an operational CISO, and I know that my peers do too, is that there's actually quite a limited range of decisions that you have full autonomy over even really basic things. Like um, we know, for example, that if you've got a relatively up-to-date technology stack, I don't, I'm not talking security tools, but just your tech stack in your com- in your companies. If that's relatively up-to-date, you've actually got a pretty good security profile right out of the gate, right? So the more modern your technology, the better off you are. The CISO doesn't get to decide what kind of technology company consumes usually, right? It's a a business decision. It's it's an an IT or a CTO kind of decision. And the CISO has to respond to those decisions. If they're lucky, they might be in the room where those decisions are made. So they know that they're coming, but nonetheless, they're they're reacting to the decisions that someone else has made. Um, So this, this role has to, by its very nature, be able to work with partners and stakeholders in an influence capacity because we just don't, we're not given the out and out authority that we'd like to have. Like I would love to see the day where CIOs and CTOs report to the CISOs, but right now that's not the case. And in fact, often it's more often than not, that's flipped. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens over time. Uh, but, but yeah, that stakeholder engagement not only with IT, but also with C suites, with boards, with CFOs, in general. You know that that is the nature of the role, actually.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's this is an interesting point. You know the fact that security teams don't necessarily get to choose the technology mm-hmm. in. Uh, the company's using, but it plays such a large role in the overall security of the company. Yep. Is this shifting at all in organizations? You know, are technology teams having to go to the security team now to get approval for things they want to deploy, or is it still, you know, is it still pretty much the tech team get to decide and then the security team just have to deal with that decision?
1: I don't think it's either of those things. I think it's in the middle. I I think the security team doesn't get to approve or not approve. I think if the security team is well-placed, it gets to advise into the decision-making process. Um, But ultimately, if a a security team goes in and becomes a roadblock, they become irrelevant really, really quickly. People will Mm. find a way to work around them. So... Uh, it, it's, it needs to be somewhere in the middle. You don't want to, as a security leader, you don't want to find out after the fact that there's a major thing happening. You need to be in the room where the decisions are being made, but it's ultimately not your decision to make. Now, I say that knowing that operationally we have things like third-party assessments as part of the procurement process, and there may be red flags that get raised by the security team that may ultimately force a decision to not go with a certain vendor or that kind of thing. But that is actually more the exception than the rule. More often, the security team sort of holds their nose and says, okay, you can move forward with this vendor, but here are all the action plans that will need to be um, completed if we're going to move forward with this engagement. So, So they don't say no, they say yes and, and that's how we're seeing the mature security teams work.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point as well. I've certainly seen a shift in this as well. Security Mm -hmm. teams as the enabler for things to happen at an organization. How do you advise security teams think about their impact on the overall business objectives, not just keeping the company secure, but also actually helping the company kind of move faster and use the technology it wants, have access to the data it needs, et cetera?
1: Yeah, it, it's a really difficult thing. Like, it's easy to talk about and difficult to do. We talk about security, mature security organisations should be enabling the business to do whatever it is the business does. The reality is a lot of security teams have buried multiple layers down into an organisation. And there are few security organisations where the security leadership again are in those conversations at the C-suite level where strategic conversations are being held so that they can learn how to know what the business values, right? So most businesses, and I don't care about the size, they have a talk track about what they value and what their purpose is, but that doesn't always match the reality of how they act and the decisions that they make. And a CISO or a security leader needs to know both and they need to They need to sell what security is doing in terms of those declared values and the declared missional purposes of the organisation, but they also need to be able to configure the way they do security within the reality of how business gets done within that organisation. So a a security leader's got to be able to read the tea leaves of what the company's aspiring to do with what it is actually doing and find that middle ground. And that can be really hard. Um, And often a lot of the major changes that happen to a company are kept confidential within a very small circle of people. And I'm thinking about things like mergers and acquisitions, um, expansion into different regions, those kinds of things. So the you know, being able to stay in front of the direction the company is going, so that you can say, yes, i'm I've designed a security strategy that enables that work can be really, really tough. So a lot of what my my advice is is strategies around how do you get into the rooms where the decisions are being made? How do you build those relationships? How do you tell stories? that resonate with those stakeholders so they want to engage you early. They don't want to tell you after the decision's already been made. That's sort of where, where those things happen.
0: And the board of directors is a huge part of this, I think, for any organisation. So how does security get a seat at the table with the board and handle yes. these discussions with the board?
1: I will tell I, I wrote a blog about this recently I'm I sort of I'm tired of putting the responsibility of getting into the boardroom on the CISO's shoulders. I don't think that's fair. I think the company and the board have to decide that they need a security leader in the boardroom with them, and to make that happen. Now I I am, at least in the United States, I'm seeing rumblings by the SEC, for example, to say if you're a publicly traded company you are going to need to have a security subject matter expert on the board of directors. Uh, That's not the CISO, by the way, but having a director who has technology risk experience. Um, And I'm also seeing um, push by the SEC to make the board think about how they are organised so that they can engage with systemic technology risk. So, in a lot of boards today, the issues around cybersecurity are handled by the Risk and Audit Committee. Well, the Risk and Audit Committee was really set up to manage financial risk, not technology risk. And so they need to rethink how how they, the board, are structured so they can have the right level of conversations with the right stakeholders. And, and that's coming in from the SEC right now, which is actually for me quite... Um, exciting I hope to see that continue but uh, most boards aren't there yet
0: so we'll see how that goes. it's interesting you mentioned financial risk and um, security risk what parallels can be drawn from managing financial risk at a board level versus security risk and then which what is different about the two
1: yeah um first of all I think from a financial perspective, um, the directors who sit on boards are typically trained in how to think about financial risk. Most directors come to the board level positions having run companies most of them have MBAs and the MBA curriculums include discussion of economics and accounting and and investments and all of those kinds of things and they have really close relationships with leaders in the organisations who manage the financials. They, they talk to the CFOs all the time, right? So there's a very good baseline of understanding of the discipline of financial management by boards of directors. That's First thing. there isn't for technology typically and there certainly isn't for cyber risk. So they may have a technologist on the board who has... Um, delivered products and delivered technology solutions and all those kinds of things. But that, again, is a different way of thinking than thinking like a CISO and a cybersecurity professional. So we don't have the talent. We don't have the training on the boards yet. That's a problem. I think also from a financial perspective, as as a society, there are a lot of structures in place around common ways of understanding financial risk. We've got generally accepted accounting principles. We've got common ways of tracking um, investments and so forth, and what the risk of investments are. We don't have that for cybersecurity yet. So it feels new and it feels like everyone's inventing their own view of the world. You know, value at risk for cyber risk is different than value at risk for financial risk for a lot of those reasons. most of which is you do a lot of investments in security and nothing happens. That's the preferred outcome. Nothing happens. Mm. So if you make a financial investment, something happens and it usually results in profitability or and so forth, right? We haven't yet worked out how to talk about systemic technology risk in terms of profitability and revenue generation. And until we do that, the boards aren't going to understand what they're doing.
0: And for the For the boards that are engaged with security or have a security leader Mm -hmm. uh, present at meetings, what are the common challenges, assumptions, objections you hear about uh, being raised at the board level? And what are your advice to CISOs and security leaders on overcoming these?
1: Yeah, right now it's those objections and and complaints are actually quite tactical. They're things like they don't feel like they've got the right level of reporting. That the metrics that are put being put in front of them, the directors don't know what to do with. One, you know, so what, you know, one is the kind of reporting appropriate, and two, so what? Is sort of seems to be the question. And I and I hear this both from the director side of the house as well as the CISO side of the house, right? So the CISOs collectively, this is a topic we talk about all the time. What should we be telling the board? How should we be telling the board those things? How often should we be talking to the board? Because this this environment we're working in is, is pretty changeable. So what is the right cadence and what is the right level of conversation? So for CISOs are struggling to, to know how and what to communicate. And then boards are struggling to know, well, what do we do with this, with this information? Because it feels like a lot of the threats that are facing organisations are external to the organisations. So it feels to directors like it's a very reactive kind of thing. So They don't know yet what it means to be a good officer of the organisation, a good director of the company related to their management of technology. Like all of them will say, for example, they'll ask a CISO, do you have enough funds? Do you have enough resources to do your job? And every single CISO, whether they answer it this way or not, would answer that question, no, I don't have enough resources. But does that mean the directors need to then turn around and instruct the CFO to give the CISO more funds? Well, no, because there are other risks that they're also managing, right? And, and directors aren't, their job isn't to manage the day-to-day of a company. It's to direct, right, and advise and encourage. So what, what is their role in managing cyber risk for an organisation then, right? How, ca- how can they help? They don't know yet. So there are organizations out there that are trying to help them discern what their role is and how that works, but it's it's not commonly understood yet.
0: I want to shift gears slightly to talk about another topic that <laughs> I know you, you speak a lot about, and that is security team burnout and under-resourced <laughs> security teams. Yes. So we had some recent data from the ISACA, and they reported 62% of security teams are understaffed today mm. and 60% of respondents are facing difficulties in retaining cybersecurity oh, yeah. staff. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this is the case?
1: Well, first of all, I think, you know, thanks to COVID, um, there are a lot of people in the security industry who are um Aware of job opportunities that they didn't have before, because companies are much more comfortable about having remote workers. So, if you were a remote worker in Silicon, Valley, if you were a worker in Silicon Valley or New York or London or you know any of the big centres, um, the geography of where you were was not an inhibitor to your career progression. But if you're like me and you're sitting in in a smaller market like Ohio or in the Midwest when organizations said you must be local to us in order to work, that really limited your potential options in terms of careers. Now I've got students that I'm teaching here at Ohio State who are getting jobs with Google and they're not moving from Ohio, right? So the the opportunity for individuals in terms of their career has just exploded because they're not geographically limited to the degree they were before. Now that may change over time, but that's That's one of the things we're seeing. Two, the market in general, I think the hiring managers in the market aren't doing a good enough job of understanding what skills they actually need. And so they're asking for things in those job postings that they don't really need. And so they're finding it hard to find candidates that fit the profile they're looking for. So there's that. And I think. West, We are seeing under-resourced security teams, and so now they've got opportunity to go elsewhere. They, uh, it is a buyer's market when it comes to hiring people, and so if, if people have been uncomfortable in their jobs for whatever reason, now is the time that they're moving. And so we're seeing quite a big exodus, not necessarily outside of security. People aren't leaving security. They're just leaving the companies that they're currently in for something else right now.
0: Yeah. And what is your advice to security teams to retain their staff against this backdrop of the great resignation and then also the skills gap in cyber?
1: Yeah. It's a difficult question. So first of all, I'd say, look, pay more, but sometimes that's within the control of the security team and sometimes that's not. And I recognize the reality of that. We are undervaluing the security for for people who are truly experienced security professionals, we are underpaid for the value we bring to the organisations. That's one. So part of what the role of a security leader is, is also to explain to their organisation what the value is that they're getting so that the their HR partners, their finance people, that whoever their leadership chain is, is willing to pay more for security talent. So we've got to sell that a little bit better as, in, as individual teams. But within the constraints of I can only pay what I can pay and I only have the staff that I have. We need to be doing what we can to double down on keeping the staff we have. Now, I think one of the biggest reasons for burnout for security is that if you are really serious about doing security, there is not a piece of your organisation or a conversation happening in your organisation where security can't play, right? So the the scope of the security job is really, really, really big. And the more you know about security, you the more you see all the places where security should be. So it's really easy to have scope creep in terms of taking on responsibilities and taking on functions that you just don't have the resources to support. So I think security leaders need to do a better job at setting boundaries And being able to say to their leadership, this is where we will pay attention and this is where we will not pay attention and be comfortable not playing in certain parts of the business because you've made a risk-based decision that that's not where you're going to be. Um, So setting those boundaries in terms of functionally what your team is going to do, how how, the kinds of things they're working on, um, the kinds of hours that they're doing, the kinds of Time you're giving them to learn new things because security people need to learn new things. Really, really important. If you've got people that are 110% deployed against putting out fires, they are going to burn out. You need to be able to pull back the work that they're doing so that they've got time to breathe and time to learn. And it's really hard to do that in this industry.
0: Helen, I've saved the big question for last, which is how you think the role of the CISO will change in the next five to ten years. What do security leaders need to think about now to prepare themselves for this?
1: Uh, I think we're going to see a stratification, a a two-tier system of security leadership. Um, I think there's going to be security leaders that because of the kind of industry they're in the size of the organization they're in they will remain primarily a technology focused technology subject matter expert CISO um, and they will continue to be aligned to the CIOs and CTOs and digital offices of their organizations and their role will be to run the security technology stacks of their organization I think the other side of security leadership goes more to the governance, risk, and compliance side of the house in terms of policy setting, uh, definitely overlaps with privacy and legal. Um, I think it will get into things like organisational change management and, and growing the security awareness of the workforce, those kinds of things. And I think right now someone with a CISO hat has to do both of those things. And I think we'll see it split. Um, and the GRC role, I think, will move more towards like a chief trust officer where it won't be a CISO role anymore, but it will incorporate things like data governance, privacy, potentially, um, that the the policy sides of security into this question of how do you how do you deliver trust on behalf of your company? I think that's where that role will go Um, So that's where I I think it's headed. Will it happen in five years? Probably not, but I think think I'm starting to see it now and I think that's where it will trend.
0: Helen, thank you so much for answering that and also thank you so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. We always like to end the show with some rapid questions to get to know the people on the Human Layer Security podcast a bit better. Uh, So my first question for you is what's a book you'd recommend to every listener of this podcast?
1: Uh, right now my favorite book is the Cyber Defense Matrix, written by Sunil Yu. Um so in terms of if you running if you're running a security platform, a uh, security program, read that book. It will help you think about how to do it. Um more geopolitically, I think Nicole Pearl Roth's book around this is how they tell me the world ends, which is around O Days and this, the buying and selling of O Days, I think was really interesting, particularly given current events that are going on. So those would be the two. Sorry, I can't give you one. (laughs) (laughs) And what is the one app you can't live without? Slack, actually. (laughs) Communication with with my security (laughs) colleagues and peers, for me, it happens on Slack. So Slack right now.
0: And my final question, what is the biggest misconception about cybersecurity?
1: Uh, That it's a technology issue. It's not a technology issue. It's a business issue.
0: Helen, thank you so much. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for spending time with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more human layer security insights in our next episode. But if you can't wait that long, you can visit our blog at tessian.com forward slash blog, where you'll find lots of amazing content, advice, and tips. And if you enjoyed our show, please rate and review it on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.